listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Be seen. Amen. Thank you so much, Adam and worship team. Uh, again, good morning, church. My name is Clint. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here, and before we launch into it too much, I just want to say on behalf of my family, thank you so much to this congregation. So uh, we were not here a couple Sundays ago because our family ended up getting COVID, and man, so many of you guys called, texted, checked in, uh, brought us food, uh, just cared for us and loved us, and so thank you so much. Also, uh, Mark is not here because his family is sick, and so many of you have asked me this morning, uh, they are doing fine, still having some symptoms and still a little sick, and they would want me to tell you in the same vein, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for caring for them, checking in with them, dropping off meals, uh, and they are doing well, and we certainly expect to see them back next Sunday. Uh, that said, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. So I'm so excited. We are starting today our new series on the book of Ephesians which is a phenomenal book. In fact, I read one commentator this week called it one of the most important documents ever written. Not just books of the Bible, documents ever written. Uh, it is a powerful book. Uh, when reading this, we're just going to cover the first two verses. Uh, I thought about an article I read a while ago about a guy in New York State. Uh, maybe a guy, maybe a girl, is an anonymous person. We don't really know who it was. But back in 2007, they bought this bowl at a garage sale for $3. I think we have, a, do we have a picture of it? Look at that. Just simple, nice little white bowl. Uh, went to the garage sale, garage sale shopping, $3, said, I'll take it. Uh, and was very happy with what they got. I mean, they got what they needed. They, something to put their cereal in. Uh, in fact, they ended up liking it so much, they displayed it in their living room for several years. Uh, and then some years later, in 2013, uh, they ended up having it appraised. And then it was discovered that this bowl was over a thousand years old from the Northern Song Dynasty in China. And in fact, there was only one other bowl like this known to exist in the entire world. And so they did what you would do. They sold that puppy <laughs> for over $2 million. And so you think about whoever that person was, he or she, you know, all those years they had that bowl. They were perfectly happy with it, weren't they? He got what he wanted, but he had no idea how much he really had. You know, our Christian life, I think, can be that way. You know, I thought about this way, you know, what, why did I become a Christian? And you may think about, somebody asked you that question, you know, why did you become a Christian? And I remember being a, a child and, and knowing I, I, was, I had sin. I was sinful. I needed God to forgive me of my sins. Maybe some of you would say, I didn't want to go to hell or I wanted to go to heaven. You know, there's some in here who would say, you know what? My life was a dumpster fire. My, I needed help. I just did. My, my spouse had lefty. My, I, my, I had no relationship with my kids. Uh, I had lost my job. I'd lost everything I had and I needed God to help me. Some in here would say, you know what? Struggling with temper or addiction or whatever, some, some behavior that I couldn't shake on my own, and, and God stepped in to help me with that. But here's what, here's what always happens when we come to Christ. We get exactly what we were looking for. We, we did. We got all of those things. But you know what? In Jesus, we get so much more than often we ever expect. Enter Ephesians. 
Ephesians is here to help you and I take a proper appraisal of all that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, it's here to show us the full value of what you got when you got Christ. Paul's going to use language to kind of help us understand. It's almost like he can't find the right words. He's going to say that God has lavished his grace on us, that it's Jesus has surpassing greatness, surpassing riches that are immeasurable, unfathomable. He's going to go on to say, man, what we have in Jesus, it surpasses all of our understanding. You can try to figure it out your whole life and never fully grasp the value of what you got when you got Jesus. And so you, so you may say, why is this important? So what? You know, listen, God helped me with this and, and I believe in him. Enough said. Let's move on with our life. Well, here, here's why this is vitally important. Here's why Paul is writing this letter. And this is our big idea for our sermon today. A proper appraisal of Jesus produces a message of grace and peace. A proper appraisal of Jesus, the value we have in him, produces a message of grace and peace. So let's look in your Bibles, Ephesians 1. Where you, this is maybe the, the smallest passage we've ever preached on here. Just the first Two verses is what we're going to cover. Let's read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two short verses are what we call the salutation, the greeting. Paul is introducing himself and, and what he's going to be talking about. And so from the very outset... He's going to establish three things. Number one, here's who I am. Number two, here's who you are. And number three, here's what the gospel message is. So let's start with who he is. First word of the book, Paul. He's an apostle, he says. That word apostle, it just means sent one, someone who is sent by God. It's used in a very technical way in the church to mean the 12 disciples and Paul, those who saw Jesus in the flesh face-to-face, and were sent out by him with the gospel message. And that's why we have the whole New Testament. They were eyewitnesses to Christ. And so this title, this title of apostle, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with ego or prowess. The title stresses two things. It stresses the authority of the sender, not of Paul, the sender, and the accountability of the messenger. And so Paul is saying... My only credential, my only uh, uh, thing on my resume is the one who sent me. It's really his credentials that matter. And I, as the apostle, am accountable, responsible for caring to you the message he gave me. See, it's not, it's not my merit and it's not my message. It's all from him. That's what he's establishing. And then he repeats it by saying, but by the will of God. He, he's going to repeat that phrase, by the will of God, Four times just in the first 11 verses. From the outset, he's saying, look, I, I, I don't know, you know what, how you think this all came about. Let me tell you how it came about. By the will of God. So he's not saying, you know what, here's why I'm an apostle. God looked at my amazing resume, and he was just so impressed. He knew I was the right man for the job. No, that's, that's the farthest thing from his mind. Paul is stressing God's unmerited grace. It is his way of saying, I didn't earn this. I didn't qualify myself. He decided by the will of God. You know, Paul 
wouldn't always begin his letters with the name Paul. He used to go by another name, Saul. And there was a time in our life when he sat down to write this letter, that first name would be Saul, not Paul. And Saul would not have said, by the will of God, Saul would have written something quite different. He would have said, honestly, by the will of me. It was my intellect, my hard work, my leadership skills, my zeal and passion, my spotless reputation. That's what qualified me to write to you. You know, it's, it's so fascinating. I'm so glad he did this. So Paul, several times in the New Testament, writes about that old man Saul, looking back on who he used to be. He says, you know, I, I was a devout Jew, the most devout Jew. Circumcised on the eighth day, the strictest adherence to the law of anyone I knew. He's well-educated. He was the disciple of a guy named Gamaliel, who was the most uh, prestigious of the Pharisees. He's, he's essentially saying, I was being groomed be the, be the next big thing. He's a Roman citizen, which back then was not a right. It was a privilege. It was a privilege you earned either by great deeds or a significant amount of money. And history tells us Saul probably had both. He was moral, he was respected, he was powerful, and maybe most of all, he was passionate. He led the mob against all those immoral people who were corrupting his society. His whole life said, I'm going to prove my rightness by my zeal against your wrongness. That's, that was Saul's life. But I like the way Chuck Swindell put it. He said, it takes a man whose life has been changed to write a life-changing letter. And Saul was a man whose life had been changed. In Acts 7, we have this record of Saul's life being totally wrecked by grace. He's on his way to continue to conspire to kill Christians, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up. He says, hey, you, I'm the God whose followers you are persecuting. Now, if I'm Saul in that moment, I'm thinking, well, this is how it ends for me. <laughs> right? This is it. Here's what's surprising, shocking, jaw on the floor grace. Jesus isn't there to smite Paul. He's there to show him grace. He appears to make peace with him. Isn't that unbelievable? While well, he's on his way to persecute his followers. And so when Paul looks back at that old man, Saul, he says, listen, all that stuff I used to put on my resume, it's rubbish. He used the word translated dung. All that respect and that power and that reputation, that stuff used to be everything to me. I count it all loss. It's worthless to me because I've gained Christ. Because I've seen his grace. He says, you know what? Back when I thought I was so morally pure before God, <laughs> turns out, jokes on me, all I was bringing before God was my sin. That's all I could bring. All that stuff I thought was righteousness, turns out it was filthy, dirty rags the whole time. That's all it was. Because now he sees how much he has when he has Christ. So when Paul says, you when Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God, there is no hint of pride. There is no hint of ego. It's, it's almost like you can hear him say, listen, I know it doesn't make any sense to me either. I'm the last one that thought I would be here. And yet, by the will of God and by his grace, here I am. But you know what? He's not the only person in this letter whose life has been wrecked 
by grace and experience the peace of Jesus Christ? Because next he says, let's be clear about who you are. And he says, this is for the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, Mark talked to us a lot about uh, some background in the city of Ephesus and what a big city it was. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back on the podcast or on the website and listen to that. But just as a reminder, Ephesus was the most important city in Western Asia. That was true politically, that was true economically, and that was true religiously. In fact, towering over this whole city was the temple to Artemis. You'll hear it called the Temple of Diana. And this is a recreation. It's just in rubble now. Y'all, this thing was huge. It was as long as a football field. So if you've ever uh, seen the Parthenon in Athens or also in Nashville, Tennessee, there's a Parthenon. I don't know if y'all knew that. Uh, this is four times bigger than the Parthenon. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this temple cast a shadow over the whole city. That was true literally, and it's also true figuratively. See, this temple was in this worship of Artemis, it was enmeshed and syncretized with the political and economic life of Ephesus. So economically, you know, this temple, it, it, was, it was so full of worshipers and people come from all over the world for festivals and all kinds of things. So in that day, this temple was the world's largest bank. Th- think of it almost like the Texas State Fair. We got all these booths and all these people set up and there's just money flying all over the place. That was going on at the temple. So it was very vitally important for its economic life, but it's also all enmeshed in the political life of Ephesus. So in addition to this one huge temple, there were lots of smaller temples dedicated to the worship of the emperor. And so part of their religion was to honor their government. And part of the government was to honor their religion. So uh, citizenship and religion and business, those were not different things for them. They were all tied up together. Here's the other side of the coin, the negative way to say it. To abandon the city's religion was to be a bad citizen and be bad for business. And that's why you have riots in Acts 19. And Mark talked to us about those. So all these people in Ephesus were pagan idol worshipers in their whole political, economic, and religious life. But that's not what Paul calls them. What does Paul call them? Saints. Saints. This is mind-boggling. I almost want to be like, really, all of them are saints, Paul? Let's be honest. I mean, maybe one or two, but there's some bad apples there, right? We've got to understand uh, not just what their previous lives would have been, which, let's be clear, many of them would have been temple prostitutes. They were all polytheists. None of them ever followed the Old Testament law. I mean, let's, Paul could say, hey, I used to be moral. These were totally immoral, ate lots of bacon, no interest in Old Testament law. Probably never read it. Saints. Now, this took some kind of unlearning for me because I'm from Louisiana. And so in Louisiana, saints means one of two things. Number one, it's a football team who should all cheer for tonight, okay? <laughs> who dat? Number two, there's a big Catholic influence. And so in that influence, a, a saint is kind of, I kind of grew up thinking of it as the best Christians. The best Christians there ever were. You know, they're really moral. They did amazing miracles. Uh, they maybe sinned like once or twice, but that was it. Uh, and then they ended up, you know, they were kind of the, the best person that ever lived in one area, and they become the patron saint of that thing. And so they're like the best person that ever lived who had that job or 
did that thing. And I kind of got to reminiscing all the patron saints I've heard of. I was like, man, there's a lot of those. And so I'm going to look some, I looked up some of the patron saints. And these are real patron saints that exist in the, in the Catholic Church. So many of these I didn't know. So there's St. Balthazar, who's the patron saint of playing card manufacturers. Oddly specific. Okay, I don't, I don't know if the industry had to like lobby for, to get a saint or what the need was. But there's a, if you make playing cards, you have a patron saint. There's St. Erasmus, who is the patron saint of stomach ailments. So next time you're sprinting to the bathroom, pray to St. Erasmus, okay? Here's my favorite. St. Drago, the patron saint of unattractive people. <laughs> you know, I, I think I would turn down that honor. You know, let somebody else be that patron saint. Well, that's not what the New Testament means when it talks about a saint. And the New Testament, that word, it just means one who is set apart, one who is consecrated. That's all it means. And so a saint in the New Testament is simply anyone who has been chosen and set apart by God. So these pagans, whose political, social, economic life all used to be tied up in pagan worship, all enmeshed in this culture they lived in, Paul's saying, now you're different. Now you've been pulled out of that and set apart by God for his purpose. How, how can this be? What, what amazing feats of righteousness must they have done to get this title? Just one. They believed. That's it. They believed and they put their trust in Jesus. That's why he calls them the saints in Ephesus. He says they are faithful in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be faithful? He's not saying they're morally flawless. He's He's, you know, that's certainly what Saul would have said. That's not what Paul is saying. See, that, that word faith in the New Testament, it's, it's got a lot richer meaning than sometimes we mean in English. It means trust. It means loyalty. And so probably the phrase that we most closely use the, the Greek definition is when we say someone is acting in good faith. You know, it carries this connotation of, connotation of hey, we may disagree. They may have even made a mistake and done something wrong, but... It's got this connotation of we're still on the same team. There's trust there. There's loyalty there. We're both acting in good faith towards one another. So all Paul is saying is they were actively believing and trusting in God. And y'all, I got to tell you, that's the best news. Because I don't know about you. I, I would guess you're probably the same as me. Many of us did not show up at church this morning feeling like saints, did we? Statistically, about half of us got in an argument in the car on the way over here, Right? <laughs> Man, many of us probably showed up feeling angry, feeling afraid, feeling like, man, I got a little, maybe a little, little sliver of faith, but it ain't a whole lot, you know? Christians are saints, not in the sense that they are morally perfect, but because they have been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ by trusting him. That is what makes you a saint. Notice what he says they're faithful in. They're not faithful in their works. They're faithful, and what does it say? In Christ Jesus. Y'all, this is huge. It is huge in Ephesians. It is huge in everything that Paul writes. This is the whole shebang. For Paul, this is what it means to be a Christian, is to be in Christ. He uses some form of this phrase 164 times in 13 letters. If you write me 13 letters and say it's the same thing 164 times, I'm going to stop reading your letters, okay? Okay. He's repeating it over and over and over again. He uses it 39 times just in Ephesians. 
for Paul, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And y'all, I promise, the weeks ahead, we are going to relentlessly unpack this phrase in Christ. But for now, I'll just say this. This little phrase, in Christ Jesus, this is what makes Christianity, Christianity different from anything else in the world. Do you know, if you want to go be a good Buddhist or a good Muslim, you can do that. You can do that. It, it's, it's fairly easy. There's five things. Five things. You do these five things. We don't care what else you do. Boom, you're a good Muslim. You can do that. And it's not just religious. It's anything else you want to be. You can make yourself a good soccer mom, a good Democrat, a good Republican, a good soccer player, uh, whatever it is. A good employee. You cannot make yourself a Christian. It is the one thing you cannot do on your own. That's why, men and women, the first three chapters of Ephesians are not about you. Not at all. Not even a little bit. They are all about Jesus Christ. Essentially what Paul is saying in the beginning of Ephesians is everything God has done, he has done through his son. He really didn't need you to do it. So if you believe in Christ this morning, you're a saint. You're set apart for him. And when you are in, because when you are in him, when you're in Christ, here's what happens. There's no more punishment Jesus received all the punishment for our sin. And there's also no more earning it. Because all of the son's righteousness, all of his perfect righteousness, he's already given it to you. All of it. Wrapped up in a present. Just like we opened a bunch of in Christmas. So we have Paul who used to be Saul. Writing to saints who used to be some crazy Ephesians. What can the message be except grace and peace? And that's how Paul summarizes his message of the letter. Grace and peace to you from God. And again, I have to think, Saul, back when he was Saul, would have written something very different, wouldn't he? he would have, his, his intro message would have been fear and performance. You better sit up straight and act right or I'm coming for you. The Ephesians would have written something very different. Their message would have been politics and prosperity. You better not rock the boat or we're coming to get you. We're going to run you out of town. They did it to Paul in Acts 19. But the apostle Paul to the saints says grace and peace. This word grace, it's, it's connected to one of the best words ever written. The, the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is used to talk about God's faithful, loyal love. His undeserved, super abundant blessing. And that word hesed, that word grace... Every time they are used, 100% of the time, it is always undeserved. Always. It always shows up to people who are stubborn and sinful and foolish and don't appreciate it and sure don't deserve it. You know what God's grace is like? It's like spontaneous combustion. You know? It doesn't happen because you gather all the kindling and, and build the fire just perfectly and then you light the match and make it go. No, no, no. It appears out of nowhere and whom it consumes whatever it wants. You can't summon it and you can't control it. Grace means you are not what you do. You are who God says you are. That's what grace means. And grace is your only way to peace. So understand when Paul talks about peace here, he's not talking about yoga retreat peace or the peace you experience when your kids spend the night somewhere else. You know, it's not that kind of peace. 
Although that kind of peace is great. He's talking about peace with God. Peace in the Bible is always relational. It is always about healing our broken relationship with God. And in that sense, I got to say, you know, until this week, I misunderstood peace. That means peace isn't mostly about the absence of something. It's about presence. It's about the presence of God. You know, it's so easy to think, hey, if I can get something out of my life, I'll have peace. And so if we can get all this evil to stop or if I can get a different job or if my in-laws wouldn't stay so long at Christmas, then I could have some peace. But peace is the presence of God. It's not the absence of anything. It's the presence of God in the midst of all those things. Another thing we got to understand is the order matters. Grace comes first, and that's your only way to peace. Grace is the only thing that can bring you peace with God. That's it. Isaiah, I think, uses a perfect analogy. This is so true to life. Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, he writes this. He says, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Understand here, when he says wicked, he's not talking about like the worst person you've ever met. He's just talking about people without God. He's saying there is no possibility of peace for people without God. And here's why. If it depends on you, it's always uncertain. To the extent it depends on you, there will never be any permanence in it. That's true, certainly, of the bad things we do. That's also true of the good things you do, isn't it? Because let's say today, let's say today somehow you pull it off, you don't send it all today. Good job. Then what happens tomorrow? Got to do it all over again, don't you? How's that going to hold up? You know, I I still remember hearing an interview with a pastor, and he was talking about how fearful uh, anxious, uh, it made him when after a sermon, somebody went up to him and said, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. It changed my life. That was unbelievable. I'll never be the same. And, you, you know, and so they asked, why would that, you know, like that should be a compliment. That should be a good thing. He goes, because all I can think was, how am I ever going to top that next week? And it's the same for you at your job and your marriage and with your kids. You, you, you knock it out of the park. Great parenting today. What about tomorrow? right? That's why I love this analogy in Isaiah. He, he's talking about just the natural occurrences of life. Go to any ocean and, and the water just moves. That's just natural what happens. He, he's not talking about God smiting you. He's just saying, man, without God, all the natural ups and downs of life are just going to stir up muck and mire in your heart. That's what's going to happen. You know what grace is? Grace is like one of those long piers that stretches out into the ocean, the big concrete pillars. And those waves can move all they want to, but that grace isn't going anywhere. And you can sit on top of that pier in the middle of the ocean and be stable and unmoved. That's what grace is. Because if it depends on God, then there is certainty. And so this is why, men and women, this is why Ephesians is all about not telling you what to do, but giving you a proper appraisal of all you have in Jesus. Because that's what produces a message of grace and peace. That was Paul's message. 
Saul experienced the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ. And so his message, message to the Ephesians is that same grace and peace. And so I think it's worth asking. I think it's fair to ask for us. Is our message to the world around us one of grace and peace? And if not, why not? In other words, are we preaching, men and women, the same gospel that Paul was? If I'm honest, in large swaths of our Christian culture, it grieves me to say, no. So often, no, this is not our message. You know what? I don't usually get on social media very much, and I don't usually listen to a lot of Christian media, radio and television stations and things like that. But with all that's going on, I have been uh, the past couple weeks, and I want to share with you some of the messages that I heard. Your experience may be very different, but this was my experience. You know, I would describe the tone of many of our messages, not as grace, but anger. Not as peace, but anxiety. I heard more than I can count doomsday messages about the fate of our nation, usually, almost always with the implication that the church and the nation are the same thing, and men and women, they are not. I heard lots of Christians separating people into sheep and goats, not by faith, but by their vote, as if Jesus himself were registered with one of our political parties. It's not true. I heard many people eager to play on our fears. And then all I had to do was wait a couple minutes and I could buy their products. So I, I, would, I would group that into kind of one category of a lot of messages that I heard. The, the second category just grieves me just as much. The, the other dominant message I heard was a lie. A lie that Jesus is here to make you happy, healthy, and wealthy. As if, y'all, we've gotten in our heads that that getting rich off of Jesus takes more faith than being willing to suffer for him. That's absurd. I've heard many, and this is why the book of Ephesians, I think, is so relevant to us. There are many combining the Phariseeism of Saul that says, you know what, I'm going to prove my own rightness by pointing out everyone's wrongness. And then we combine that with the syncretism of the Ephesians. It says, you know what? Really, our religion is just a way for us to create a well-ordered and prosperous society. That's really what it's there for. And if I can be honest, people are going to preach that stuff, and that's fine. They're going to communicate that stuff. That's that's fine. You can preach that stuff and and call it politics, call it patriotism, call it self-help, call it good advice, but don't call it Christianity. Because the Christian message is a message of grace and peace. You know what, y'all, as soon as I say that, as soon as I say that, I ask, well, but what about, you fill in the blank, what about all the, the evil and the sin and, and people turn away from God? And y'all, I worry about those things. I, I worry about the type of world my kids are going to grow up in. These, there are lots of important, difficult issues. I, I worry about some of the legal decisions our culture is making on things like abortion, things like gender issues. I worry about some of the hate and injustices we see in our culture. And I know there are always real, tragic consequences to sin in our world. Always. There's going to be real suffering that happens. But here's what else I know. This whole New Testament, 
was written to people who could expect nothing other than mockery, rejection, and persecution, persecution because of their beliefs. Y'all, can you imagine if they like teleported here? They would be shocked to know how good we have it. I mean, if you could go grab one, teleport them here, I just have to feel, I feel like they'd just say, wait a minute, you became a Christian and your life did get immediately worse? Wait, wait, you got to keep your job? You got to keep your friends? You're not worried that people could come haul your family off in the middle of the night? There's actually people that agree with you? Weird. They, just, they, won't, they might laugh, they wouldn't know what to do. In the time Paul is writing Ephesians, everyone knows a change in emperor is coming. That's always a bloody affair in Rome. Everyone also knows persecution of Christians has started and is only going to get worse. And in that context, Paul preached grace and peace. And if he can, so can we, can't we? So why don't we? I got to tell you, it's much, some of these other messages are much easier to preach. My heart sprints towards those messages sometimes. The reason we don't is because we forget the value of grace and it distorts our gospel. Only a proper appraisal of the value of Jesus can produce a message of grace and peace from us. T.S. Eliot in his play The Cocktail Party through one of his characters says this, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm. The harm doesn't interest them, or they don't see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. They are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. So, listen, forget everything going on out there. Look in your own heart. When you find yourself angry, tossed around, muck and mire stirred up in your heart because of everything going on, it's because you've forgotten grace. In the nanosecond, the moment you forget the value of grace, you will jump back into that endless struggle to think well of yourself. I do it. Take it from me. I know. When you forget grace, you lose peace. So, how do we remember grace? How do we take that appraisal? Y'all, it's been a struggle for me. I'll tell you what's helped the most. I'd love to tell you what I do. I look to the many people in this church who have carried the message of grace and peace to me. I want you to know there, there are people in this church that I disagree with about current events, about elections, about doctrinal issues, about what we should name our high schools. And I've struggled for a better way to say this, but I can't find one. I hope I can be like them when I grow up. I know I'm a grown man. And some of them are even younger than me. But they are better men and women than I am. They show me grace when I've been wrong. They've been patient with me when I was immature, which is a lot. They love me when I didn't deserve it. And they're humble when they have all the reason in the world to boast. You know what? And the, the only reason I'm not telling you their names is because they would be mortified to make it about them. But you know who they are? 
You know. They've come, they've talked to you, they've cared for you. When you're sick, they've checked in on you, they greet you at the door. You see them when you go pick up your kids, you know who they are. Because with their lives, they have carried the message of grace and peace to you. We can't see inside their heart. But if we could, I'm 100% confident of what we would find. We would find that they have taken a proper appraisal of the value of Jesus Christ. They know the value of their bowl, you see. So grace and peace flows out of it. So here's my closing exhortation to you. When you are tempted to dive right back into that endless struggle to think well of yourself, take a proper appraisal of grace and the peace that you have in Jesus Christ. Hey, reading the first three chapters of Ephesians every day, great place to start. And when that's too hard, or when you forget, look to the people of grace and peace. They're all around. Turn off the social media, you know, turn off the the messages of anxiety and, and anger, and spend as much time with those people as you can. They'll remind you what you've forgotten. I know they've done it for me. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.